of God that night might have been silent for those who watched. But in a lot of ways, there was no more, no more declarational night than that one. There was more being said, more being declared at the birth of our Savior than ever before witnessed by the history of man. What was being said is that you were willing to save sinners and you were willing to do so by providing the very sacrifice that their sin deserved, that you were willing to pay the price that their sin demanded, that you, O God, were willing to be reconciled through faith in Christ and all that the sin of man needed was going to be met in the one who was born on that night. And so, O God, our our ears have heard, our hearts have listened, and our souls have found peace in the one who was born in Bethlehem on that silent night. I pray, O God, that no person in this room might miss the significance of the season that we love the things associated with it. But those have become so dear to us because the celebration is so terribly significant and profound that the celebration is meaningless and hollow without its hub, that being the birth of our Savior. Oh God, we continue to pray for those that we love in our families that we'll gather with over these days, those who do not know the Savior, a son, a daughter, a, a husband, a wife, a mother, a father, a, an in-law, for indeed, oh God, it was Jesus who said that he would separate families. For there would be some who would embrace him and some who would not. And we pray that you would use us to introduce those we love to the one that we have found who loved us and gave himself up for us. Father, keep us safe during this season. Guard us as we travel and bring us back to our homes safe and sound. And might we begin to look forward to another year of serving the King of Kings. We do continue to pray for our nation. She is at war and pray that our president will make the wisest of decisions and his cabinet will give him the best of advice. But Father, first and foremost, we are not Americans. We love our country and we thank you that you have shed your grace on her. But first and foremost, we are citizens of another kingdom, the kingdom of God, the one whose king was the one born to die. Father, we thank you for the good news that we've heard about Gavin, and we thank you for the, uh, the, the good news that we've heard other places concerning our people's health, and we pray that you will continue to guard us and grant us that great gift that we take for granted. And now, Father, accept our worship, accept our gifts. They are small but we want them to be used for the advancement of the kingdom of Christ and nothing else. That's why we've given them. Not, because, not so that 
trivial things can be bought, but so that men can hear about the one who was born to die. We pray, of course, in the name of the one who taught his people to pray, saying together, Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Thank you. Uh, I'm I'm probably not the only one that uh, one of the things that you enjoy most about this the Christmas season each year is the music. There's all kinds of music that that is associated and um, and and it's just fun to listen to. You know, if, um, 104 plays Christmas music 24 hours a day, which I thought was kind of odd. And you know, some of the some of the best uh, sacred music being sung right now is on FM 104, which is uh, when I'm shaving in the morning, that's what I'm listening to. And to hear them sing about Christ the Savior is just it's kind of interesting and fun. And I, I guess my one of my favorites, particularly when Johnny Mathis sings it, is that um, Oh Holy Night. You know, um, and it has that big ending, Oh Night, you know, that huge big ending. Uh, that's just one of my, my favorite of uh, tunes of the whole season. Well, the the reason I mention that is because I, I want to uh, draw your attention to the holy night that he sings about and the rest of the folks who sing about it. Because our knowledge of what happened on that holy night um, is given to us by only two of the four gospel writers. Uh, there are four Gospels in the New Testament, as you know, but only two of them give us an account of that holy night. And very honestly, their accounts are very brief. If you'll read uh, the account from Matthew and the account from Luke, you'll discover that uh, they didn't say much. They, um, their, their words were somewhat limit, limited. And the other two Gospel writers, Mark and John... They begin their um, uh, gospels really at when Jesus was at the age of thirty, which, as you can well imagine, skips his birth or ignores his birth, and so they really don't give us um, much at all about that holy night. So we're greatly indebted to Matthew and Luke for giving us what we know about that holy night. But not so fast. Most Bible teachers would agree that John does give us an account of the Nativity. But he doesn't do it in his Gospel. You know, he, he, uh, he wrote five books that are included in the New Testament. And uh, it's not in his Gospel that it is found. It's not in 1 John, nor 2 John, nor 3 John that John gives us an account of the nativity of Christ, the birth of Christ. But it's found in that book that he wrote while exiled to the Isle of Patmos. The book of Revelation contains what most biblical scholars would call John's version 
of the Nativity. I'd like for you to read it or watch it as I read it. So open your Bibles with me, if you will, to Revelation chapter 12. And I'm going to read the entire chapter of Revelation chapter 12, John's version of the Nativity story. Revelation chapter 12 at verse 1. Now a great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a garland of twelve stars. Then being with child, she cried out in labor and in pain to give birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great fiery red dragon having seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems on his head. His tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth to devour her child as soon as it was born. She bore a male child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up to God and his throne. Then the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God that they should feed her there 1,260 days. And war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon and the dragon and his angels fought. But they did not prevail, nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. So the great dragon was cast out. That serpent of old called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth, and, the, and his angels were cast out with him. Then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren who accused them before our God day and night has been cast down. And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. And they did not love their lives to the death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea, for the devil has come down to you, having great wrath. Because he knows that he has a short time. Now when the dragon saw that he had been cast to the earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. But the woman was given two wings of a great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness to her place where she is nourished for a time and a times and a half a time from the presence of the serpent. So the serpent spewed water out of his mouth like a flood after the woman that he might cause her to be carried away by the flood. But the earth helped the woman and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed up the flood which the dragon had spewed out of his mouth. And the dragon was enraged with the woman, and he went to make war with the rest of her offspring who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Ladies and gentlemen, the, the, the story that I've just re read you really begins in chapter 11. At verse 15, with the blowing of the seventh of the seven trumpets. If you know anything about the book of Revelation, you know that there's a, there's a, several chapters that are devoted to the blowing of seven trumpets. 
And this story that we read in chapter 12 really begins with the blowing of that seventh trumpet in verse 15 of chapter 11. Having heard that, uh, that trumpet sound, the 24 elders, as recorded in 1116, the, the 24 elders who are, who are sitting before the throne of God, they break into song that is recorded for you in verses 17 and 8. 17 and 18. And their song comes amidst, we're told, uh, in verse 19, amidst lightnings and noises and thunderings and earthquake and great hail. And we're also told in verse 19 that the, that the door of the heavenly temple swings open and there we see, we are told, that John sees the Ark of the Covenant. For those of you who think that Indiana Jones is still wondering where it is, I know where it is. It's there. It's in heaven. It's in the, it's in the throne room of God, the Ark of the Covenant. There it is, Indiana. Uh, look no longer. But then, having that scene, we come to chapter 12, and this woman appears. A woman that is so beautiful, apparently, that she is described as being clothed with the sun. She is standing on the moon, and on her head there is a garland of twelve stars. And she is pregnant. And, and almost immediately, we're told, she collapses into the travail of childbirth. And immediately upon that description, we're told that there is another sign in heaven. And that sign has to do with a dragon that appears. As ugly as the woman is beautiful, a fiery red dragon with all of its seven heads poised to to devour this infant that is about to come from the womb of this woman. And then in verse 5, we're told that the, that the moment the child appears, that the dragon uh, lunges at the woman, and at the last possible moment, there is a rescue. The infant's son is seized and is lifted up to the throne of God, and the mother escapes to the wilderness where she is to be cared for. Now, ladies and gentlemen, that's not exactly the nativity story that we're accustomed to, now is it? It's not the one that we grew up with, now is it? The, um, the response to the one that we grew up with is normally shutting our doors to the wintry world and drinking another cup of hot chocolate and singing more carols. But this story, in Revelation tra- chapter 12... What Revelation 12 does is pull back for us a curtain and gives us a glimpse of what Christmas must have looked like in heaven. The perspective of heaven on what is going on on that holy night. It's almost as if we are viewing Christmas through angels' eyes as they watch this thing that is unfolding in their presence. In heaven, the the great invasion had begun and this daring raid on the part of the forces of good into this, this other kingdom where evil reigns. And the immediate consequence of the birth is not Christmas carols. It's a war. 
It's a war that spreads across the heavens and pits Michael and his angels against the dragon and his angels. And back and forth across the heavens, this, this contest rages on. And then, almost as suddenly as it began, it's over. And the dragons and his hosts, they lose. Because they are no match for Michael and his angels. And they, they fall out of heaven into a heap. In fact, uh, in verse 9, it says that they're cast out. And the Greek word is a blethe, which it, it is kind of a very um, uh, undignified word. It's like they were, they were unceremoniously tossed out. And all of those terrorizing names that Satan is called are listed there. The great dragon. The, uh, the, the serpent of old, the devil, Satan, the one who deceives the whole world. They all kind of get thrown out. I mean, it's all one person, but and, and, and you see them kind of dumped onto the earth as a, as a pile of dirty laundry. And then in verses 10 through 12, there, there's, it seems to be describing, um, or the point of those three verses is the description of the defeat of Satan and with reference, I think, to the resurrection and crucifixion of Christ. That, that, that thing that brought on his ultimate defeat. And then we return to the story in verse 10, verse, excuse me, verse 13. And what you find there, it, it seems like a scene as if Satan is almost contemplating his options. Having been defeated in his desire to consume the child... He now focuses his attention on the mother. If he can't have the child, then he's going to go after the mother. And this serpent vomits out this this cataract of water towards the woman, which is designed to drown her. But the earth is no more hospitable to his designs than were the heavens. And the earth opens up and swallows the water that was intended... To drown the woman. So now, Satan has lost twice. He lost in his design to devour the child. And he lost in his design to devour the mother of the child. Is there anybody left to attack? As a matter of fact, there is. And we're told that in verse 17. Because the woman has escaped, the dragon was enraged with the woman. And so he goes to make war with the rest of her offspring. And then you get a comma. And then you get a description of the offspring. What offspring do you have in mind, John? Oh, it's those... Men and women who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. (laughs) That would be us. The dragon's quarrel is not so much against mankind per se... His quarrel is with that portion of mankind that keep the commandments of God 
and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. Isn't that an interesting description of Christians? Two little things that, that the, the author uses to describe us. They keep the commandments of God and they, they have Jesus witnessing words on their lips. So now the great offense of this evil one is against those guys. Us. That's not exactly the, um, the nativity story that you grew up with, is it? How do you like that one? How do you like that nativity story? I, I wouldn't blame you for clinging to the one about the wise men and the, and the uh, frightened shepherds and a manger. I, I, I share your sentiments. I like that one far better than I like this one. Yet, ladies and gentlemen, it, it, um, this story, I think, reminds us that there's something about Jesus' arrival that we cannot afford to, to forget. Because highlighted in his coming is the conflict between good and evil. The, the, the conflict between righteousness and unrighteousness. It's a conflict that has always existed, but it's a conflict that is underscored and exacerbated by his coming. The conflict between those who, who submit to his rule... And those who refuse to submit to his rule. Because of the coming of the Redeemer, the one who fulfilled so many of the promises. Because he's now arrived. All of humanity is going to fall on one side or the other of him. Ladies and gentlemen, his arrival means that all of mankind is divided up into two and only two groups. There are only two sides in this great cosmic battle. No neutrality. No third option. The coming of Jesus Christ means that all of humanity is broken up into two groups. This one who divides all of human history up into B.C. and A.D. is also the one that divides all of mankind into two groups of people. One group who love his rule and the other group who fight and resist the rule of the King of Kings. When Susie and I um, decided that God had called us into the ministry, um, you know, I was 24 years old and she was um, barely turned 23. We'd already been married a couple of years, and um, actually about 18 months or so. And we left our job with Procter and & Gamble and, and uh, headed off to, um, 
to Reform Seminary in Jackson, Mississippi. And, but um, the two of us did not go alone. There was a, a, another man that went with us. Um, he was a single guy. He was several years older than I. And he was a physical therapist. And he, too, felt that God had called him into the ministry. And so we rented a U-Haul truck uh, and put all of our life's belongings. He filled up a whole lot more of the truck than we did. He owned the house. We were renting a little, con- a little um, duplex. And uh, we put all of our life's belongings into a U-Haul. And the three of us set out for Jackson, Mississippi. Um, David Todd, Susie, and me driving two cars in a U-Haul truck. And at, at uh, one time, I almost lost my dear wife because of a rainstorm in Defuniac Springs, Florida. You ever been there? Well, it was long before there was four lanes. Um, uh, there my dear wife was driving our car. I was driving the truck, and David was driving his car. It was pouring, and she couldn't see the truck, much less the road. But God in his kindness kept us all safe. And anyway, we arrived at, at school, and Susie and I moved into a little house. And, and our friend David Todd um, moved into a dorm. It was a house that they had subdivided into several rooms. Um, and uh, we, were, we were lonely and homesick and missed Florida. And, um, but we at least had each other. But David didn't have anybody. And um, he had gone from a very nice home in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, and moved into this little garage apartment uh, that was kind of tacked onto a house. And he was out there by himself with some... And he was... He was much older than the other students, much older than I, and, and uh, there he was, no wife, you know, really couldn't make too much of a friendship with the guys he was living with, and really the only people that he had were Susie and me, and he called way too often, and he talked way too long, and he visited way too much. But we really felt sorry for him, almost responsible for his being there as well as ours. But we had so much in common. We had come to know the Lord late, or he later than I in life, and had left some decent careers and moved away from a place that we loved and headed off to seminary. And, and David would, as I said, stop by our house much more than we wanted him to. And, um, you know, if, if seminary is anything, at least the one that I attended, it demanded a, a great deal of rigorous study. And, and, you know, you were studying every night. And, and David, you know, he didn't have a wife, and he had more time on his hands than I did, and he was bugging the daylights out of me, you know. And, and uh, he's calling on the phone all the time, and, uh, and really about trivia, you know, nothing really interesting, but one night... I tell you this story to come to this. One night he calls me, and and you can hear David wasn't exactly what you'd call the uh, the the uh, the life of the party kind of guy. Great great fella, but but you could hear an excitement in his voice, and he wanted to share with me a verse that he had found in the Bible. Now, do you want to know what I mean by found? Has <laughs> that ever happened to you? We've been a Christian about. I mean, we've been Christians about eighteen months. We didn't know much of what the Bible had to say. And all of a sudden, you're reading the Bible and something jumps out at you that you've never seen before. Has that ever happened to you? Sure it has. I mean, you know, you, you thought you knew the Bible and all of a sudden there's something there and it's staring you right in the face. And you think, oh, 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 I've never seen that before. 
And maybe it's because the Spirit of God is speaking to you in a unique way. I don't know. But he called me with all this excitement because he had a verse of Scripture that he wanted to share with me. And I want to share with you. And he, he asked me to go get my Bible. And so I said, okay, David, I'll go. get." So I went and got my Bible and I got it back on the phone. And I want you to open your Bibles to Luke chapter 12. And I want to show you the verse that David was so excited about that night. But there's a, there is a... Um, there's a parallel. I just want you to go to Luke 12. But I'm going to read you both of them. I'm going to read you the one in Luke 12. But I'm going to read you the parallel, which is also found in Matthew chapter 10. But don't you go there. Just, just stay in Luke 12. And this is the verse that David was so excited about that night when he called me. Luke chapter 12, verse 51. It's in red. That means that Jesus was talking. And Jesus says, Do you suppose that I came to give peace on earth? I tell you not at all, but rather division. I remember, I remember he read it to me in the King James. You know, back then, there wasn't as many trends. But the King James says something like this. Ye suppose that I came to bring peace on the earth? I tell ye nay! But rather division. Let me read you Matthew's version of it. It's in Matthew chapter 10, verse 34. Do not think that I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace. But a sword... My wife and I had been Christians for 18 months and we were all celebrating how meek and mild Jesus was. And how absolutely thrilled we were that He saved sinners. We were just, uh, you know, kind of having afterglow still about in this swell that God loves sinners as wicked as wicked as I. And it all got ruined. Not again ruined. It all got changed. With a phone call from David Todd, who said, have you seen this? And I said, David, no, I haven't seen it. I've I've never, I, I never dreamed, I've never thought about it. That one of the consequences of Jesus' coming is to divide all of mankind into two groups. Jesus, Jesus, meek and mild, wouldn't hurt a little child. Jesus, the Prince of Peace, that Jesus, that Jesus says, Do you suppose that I came to bring peace upon the earth? I tell you nay. I came to bring division. My brothers and sisters in Christ, what I'm suggesting is simply this. That one of the dimensions of the Christmas story that is not often a part of the normal story that we enjoy every December is that the arrival of Jesus Christ forces upon us an enormous issue. May I say that again? That one of the dimensions of the story that you don't often hear 
in our celebration of Christmas each year is an issue that is huge. And the issue is that Jesus Christ's coming means that all of mankind is divided up into two groups. So, on which side of that division created by Christ have you fallen? Today, you are either for Him or you are against Him. This very moment, my friend, He is either your God or you serve an idol. Today, right now, this very moment, you have either fallen under His rule or you stand opposed to His rule. There is no third option. This day, this day, you are either a Christian, having been bathed in the righteousness of Christ, or you are a non-Christian, holding on to some kind of self-salvation strategy. One of those options will land you in heaven. The other option will land you in hell. The babe in the manger has a sword in his hand. Philip Yancey tells a story about um, something that he read in a newspaper. In fact, I read about it too. It was in the, all the news magazines several years ago. In fact, in 1993, it was a news report about a, a Messiah sighting a Messiah sighting in the Crown Heights section of Brooklyn, New York. There are 20,000 Lubavitcher Hasidic Jews who live in the Crown Heights section of Brooklyn in New York. And in 1993, many of them believed that the Messiah was dwelling among them in the person of Rabbi Menachem Mendel Schneerson. A word of the rabbi's public appearance spread through the section, the Crown Heights section of New York, like, like wildfire. And these Lubavitchers, with their black felt hats and black coats and long beards and curls at their, at their sideburns, were dashing down the streets and sidewalks, headed to the synagogue where the rabbi was known to normally appear. They, they jammed into this one meeting hall by the hundreds, elbowing each other, and some even climbed up the, the, um, the pillars to create more room for others. And the hall was jammed and filled with an air of anticipation and a frenzy almost, a, a frenzy that you see at a at a football game as opposed to some kind of religious event. And everyone waited expectantly until the curtain was opened. The rabbi was 91 years old. And he had had a 
a stroke the year before and had not been able to speak one word for a year. And when the curtain was finally pulled back, all those who had crowded into this synagogue, what they saw was a frail old man lying on a, on a couch or a cot with a long beard who could do little but wave and tilt his head and, and lift his eyebrows. But no one in the audience seemed to mind. Didn't seem to disappoint them at all. And they begin to burst out in a, in a chorus. And here's what they sang. Long live our master, our teacher, and our rabbi, king, messiah, forever and ever. They sang over and over in unison. Long live our master, our teacher, our rabbi, king, messiah, forever and ever. And it built in a crescendo until finally all the rabbi could do is make some small little Delphic gesture with his hand. And they closed the curtains. And all in attendance waited and waited until finally they gave up and departed slowly, savoring this state of ecstasy that they had just enjoyed. Rabbi Schneerson died several weeks later. And I'm sure that Rabbi Schneerson was a very nice man, as were his followers. But I have a hunch, and I think it's pretty clear as to which side they fall concerning this Jesus of Nazareth. But there's not much that I can do in the Crown Heights section of Brooklyn. But by God's grace, I would like to do something in East Memphis, Germantown, slash Kyreville. Because more to the point is not on which side do the Lubavitchers fall, but on which side of this division created by Christ do you fall? This babe of Bethlehem brings a sword with him, ladies and gentlemen. And with it, he divides all of mankind into two groups. (coughs) Into which group have you fallen? Our Father, I pray that you will make today the day of redemption and release for some. Some who perhaps have never realized that there is only two options for men and women today. Either they are either for this Christ or they are against him. And his arrival, though a sweet note for the believer is also a reminder 
that he came not to bring peace, but came to bring a sword. It is the way Christmas looked from heaven's perspective. It is the way Christmas looked through angels' eyes. It is the way, or it at least is part of the way, that we must view Christmas. That at least one dimension of Christmas is that it forces upon all of us a choice. Will this Jesus be our God and Savior? Or will we oppose His rule? And seek to worship that which we make into an idol. O God, might no man, woman, boy, or girl leave this room without having figured out at least which side of this division they stand. And might, by the gracious Holy Spirit, men be brought to a saving knowledge of Christ. And this be the first Christmas that is celebrated with Jesus as Savior and Lord. We ask it, of course, in Jesus' name. Amen.